Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Around the Block podcast. On today's episode, Coinbase's Dan Kim will be leading a discussion on whether the U.S. is losing the battle to be the best place for listing new asset projects. And joining him for that conversation are Luke Lom, founding partner at Faculty Group, and Daniel Forrester, a partner at the tech-focused law firm Oric. I hope you enjoy it. But first, I'm going to talk to my chief of staff, Mark Cialoni, about what's top of mind at Coinbase. All right. So this week, there was a lot of discussion around Apple and the App Store and how they apply pressure to developers, uh, not just crypto developers, but all, all developers across sort of the tech ecosystem. Uh, our team put out a tweet thread on um, a recent case where we were blocked, which is not an uncommon event for us. Um, why do you think Apple blocks us? And um, what do you think the solution is to um, you know, removing that friction from the ecosystem? Yeah. So I think a lot of people may not realize that a lot of tech companies, including us, are having constant dialogues, and I would even call them battles, behind the scenes, trying to get functionality out in the Apple App Store. And, you know, look, Google and their Play Store is not perfect either, but I'd say on average, it's a hell of a lot better than what's been going on over at Apple. And there's something kind of weird that happened um, in the history of Apple, where it took a more, this may have come from Steve Jobs, I'm not really sure, to be honest, the entire inner dynamic there. But for whatever reason, Apple took a more paternalistic view of how they created their app store. And they said, they didn't say, hey, this is your hardware. It's your phone. You can run whatever applications on it. They said, actually, we know best. And we're going to kind of tell you as your as your parent <laughs> what you can and can't do on this hardware that you bought from us for $1,000 or whatever. That has always kind of bothered me, frankly, as a just someone who cares about freedom and like self-sovereignty and you know if i pay my money for my own hardware like i want to be able to run whatever software i want on it thank you very much i get their argument too they want to prevent people from having you know scams and malware and things like that but that's that's different this is they're, they've gone way beyond just kind of preventing harm and they've actually taken really strong editorial positions um in some cases that are anti-competitive so let's let's talk about that i mean look microsoft had a whole uh case in the 90s uh with the windows operating system because they were sort of being anti-competitive about what other browsers you could have. And they tried to make it difficult or impossible to have other browsers besides their own browser, Internet Explorer. In my view, uh, you know, I'm not a lawyer, but in my view, it looks very similar to what Apple is doing today, where they're not allowing other app stores on the platform that may have different uh, permissions about how to, to sideload apps or to have just make it even easy to install apps by default. And they've blocked any kind of functionality in an, in an app on the app platform that that looks like an app store. And we've had challenges over the years about getting basic functionality in our app. Like even early on, we couldn't even get the ability for people to, to buy and sell and send and receive crypto. And it took a mini revolt of, of, of Apple customers. I don't know if anybody remembers this in the crypto space, but there was a period where Apple, a bunch of Apple customers actually started destroying their iPhones and like lighting them on fire and beating them up with hammers and things like that and put posting videos of it on social media before Apple finally caved and said, okay, all right, we'll let we'll let crypto apps be in there with sending and receiving and buying receiving uh, buying and selling crypto. So now we've seen that that sort of moment that era has passed and they've allowed those apps, but the next battles are constantly being fought behind the scenes. So one of them is around NFTs. You know, the most recent thing they blocked was allowing people to send NFTs. Um, in the past, they've also blocked access to uh, DApps or decentralized apps, and DApps are really just like websites. You know, you shouldn't be able to block websites in applications, but they're saying, oh, it's more like an app store. So 
these battles are constantly being fought by almost every crypto CEO that I that has an app in the App Store that I that I talk to. And I think it's a big thing that people just don't know about. So I'm glad people are starting to pay more attention to it. Yeah, for users out there that that can't get access to the features that they want, what, what can they do to help you know influence Apple or get Apple to um, enable some of these features or stop blocking them uh, from a bunch of crypto companies that can't get them to the door? I think if you're an average crypto customer or user, the best thing, you know, frankly, you can complain to Apple all you want. They probably aren't going to listen until you actually switch. I, I switch back and forth every couple of years just to kind of understand both ecosystems. And for instance, things like voice to text on Android is just like way ahead of where iOS is. So, you know, I, Apple is probably better on the hardware side. Google is probably better on the software side, but they all, you know, I hate to say it, but last time what got Apple's attention was people literally like destroying their Apple products in, in protest. And Apple cared enough about their customers. I don't think they care about the crypto companies, but they care about their customers. And so if that starts happening, they'll probably change their tune. Yeah, I'm a long time Apple user. I don't know how, how long it's gonna last though. Um, <laughs> maybe switching gears to um, another topic, remote first. We've been remote for a little over two and a half years now. And I feel like we've recently seen a big reversal, at least in like the tech community about, you know, if remote is better than in-person or if in-person is better than remote and just the broader perception of it. Snap's going back to the office. Twitter's going back to the office. What, what's your point of view? I mean, you, you wrote this blog post when we, when we did it back in, I think, May of 2020. Um, and we've done the experiment for a few years. Like, do you think this is the right model? Do you think in-person is better? Where's your, where's your head on that right now? Yeah, so I think this is definitely a complex and nuanced topic. Here's how I think about it. So it really depends on the, the company and the stage of the company. So probably, you know, if you were doing um, a startup uh, with a small group of people, I would probably prefer to get that group of people together as frequently as I could in the early days to help it gel and bond. Um, but I don't think it's necessary to have 100% of people there. I think if you're a hardware company or you're in biotech and you need to be in the lab, like those are obviously examples where it makes more sense to get people together in person. But if you're a bigger company and you can do more things with software, um, I still think it's a superpower to be able to do remote and do remote well. Um, Coinbase is remote first. And so what that means for us is that we have some, we have a number of offices that we have around the world and uh, there's people who can choose to go into those. And there's certain um, products that we have with teams that are clustered around certain geos like our, like uh, Coinbase Prime. A lot of that team is, is based around New York City. And so I wanna make sure that there are clusters of people who can come together and for periods of time, whether it's to kick off a new project, kick off a new um, initiative and kind of, um, or do a sprint and like really gel. Um, or it could be for an offsite or something like that. But I don't think that employees need to be together in office every day of the week. I think that that's kind of an outdated idea at this point. I think that um, there's a lot of things we're going to have to figure out how to make it work in this remote environment to make sure it's still fun and there's social activities and that people can um, get together for like dinners or happy hours and things like that. And just even if it's not specifically the people on their team, but just in that city where they're located. So one of the big pushes we're making is kind of to get every employee at Coinbase should get together in person with another group of Coinbase employees at least once a quarter. And sometimes that might be flying somewhere to be, to be with your team, but other times it might just be, you know, a bunch of people having dinner or drinks like in the city where you happen to be. So um, yeah, we're we're gonna keep working, doing remote first. I, I think it's actually, it's much more crypto native actually, like a lot of the crypto first projects are distributed. It's the way to get to the best talent in the world. And um, not every product at Coinbase needs to be exactly the same. So our Coinbase, Coinbase wallet might be more distributed crypto native. 
Coinbase Prime, which focuses on institutions, might be more centered around New York or major London, major hubs like that. So um, that's our current, my current thinking on it, and we're going to keep doing remote first. Cool. Yeah, I think it's been um, it's been a huge unlock for so many folks, but there's a lot of things that we can do to make it to make it better uh, and then and to lean into it. Um, maybe one last one here. I think everybody in the crypto community, I know everybody at Coinbase has been, um, you know, reading Twitter, seeing all these stories about the SBF and FTX situation. And I know that my job has been on the floor with a few of the headlines um, because it feels like they're treating this guy who I think is a fraud as uh, kind of like a kid who'd made a mistake and it's not a big deal. Um, so I'm curious, like, what do you think about the whole uh, the whole situation? What do you think is happening behind the scenes? Um, and, and why is he being portrayed this way? Yeah, I have to admit, this kind of really surprised me too. It broke my model of reality. I thought, um, you know, the mainstream media loves to kind of beat up on tech sometimes, right? And so um, this is just a layup, right? Like something bad happened in crypto and in tech. I thought everybody would just pile on and and come out as how how much of a fraudster this guy is or whatever. And it was weird, the kind of soft takes and people, uh, we saw, you know, like Semaphore, which I guess took money from SBF and um, Henry Blodgett at, at Business Insider was tweeting this thing that we had a really civil back and forth about it. But, you know, he was kind of coming out and being, I don't, I don't get it. Like this guy just had a run on the bank could happen to anyone. Right. And I was surprised, like the level of that understanding that some people had where it's like, no, that, I mean, if you're running a hedge fund, you can have, you can have like your assets be underwater or something like that. But if you're holding customer assets one for one, which is exactly what FTX said they were doing in their user terms, that's what the law requires you to do. There's no such thing as a run on the bank. Like 100% of people can come ask for their money and you're just holding it for them and you give it back to them. And clearly that didn't happen here. They shut down, they turned off withdrawals and a bunch of people's money was not there to the tune of $10 billion, which to me is, you know, I mean, of course, like let's let the investigators go in and confirm, but like I can't imagine any world where this is not a massive fraud. And he took, it appears he took the customer deposits from FTX and they were going right into their hedge fund, into which is like his hedge fund. So that's that's crazy. And it's um, I don't understand why that point has not been more clearly made. Now, I will give credit to a few people. I mean, um, George Stepanopoulos in his interview, I think really pinned him down on this. And, and every time I've noticed it bizarrely, sometimes Sam answers these questions and it's like, he's quite good at dodging and just giving these evasive answers, these non-answers, right? And he'll get asked a question like, well, when did you commingle the customer funds? And he'll be like, well, Alameda had a margin position. It's like, no, we're not talking about a margin position. <laughs> like the customer funds, when did they go into your hedge fund? You know, and George Stephanopoulos actually pinned him down on that. So look, I, I'm simultaneously of the mind that I kind of want to just stop watching this guy. Like he burned all of us. He seems to be like very interested in continuing to have a media presence, which is like, which is unhealthy. I don't understand where that's coming from. And frankly, I would love it if we, as an industry, we can just turn the page and stop watching this guy talk about all these things. Like, but the media, the media, you know, they're going to get on board. I, I, I hope that um, it's just, it's a train wreck. It's hard for us all to peel our eyes away from it. But my hope is we can just turn the page, move forward. And frankly, you know, there's probably a couple of other like, bad actors out there in crypto there's definitely some things which are kind of sketchy and they've never been really you know painting within the lines i don't want to name any names but um we need to get this stuff cleaned up so the industry can just move forward and keep building for the legitimate space that it that it actually is with like 90 well over 95 percent of people in this space are legitimate i believe that strongly and they're trying to do the right thing it just doesn't get the headlines and so these 
this kind of activity really just sets us all back until we can get past it. What outcome do you think we need to have with, with SBF to, or this whole FTX situation to move past this? It's more directly, do you think he should go to jail? Oh, 100%. I mean, if he doesn't go to jail, it'll be a massive miscarriage of justice. And that would help if he just gets into custody and goes to jail. So maybe the interviews stop and we can all just kind of move on. But um, I, frankly, it's it's sort of surprising to me that he's not in custody. The whole thing needs to just, law enforcement should go put him in, in handcuffs. And not just it's not just him. There's at least, you know, a, a handful of other people there. The sooner that that can happen, I think people will be able to move past. Yeah. Well, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out and hopefully quickly so we can all get past this um, never-ending story. Um, Brian, thanks for the time. Yeah, thank you, Mark. Hey, everyone. My name is Dan Kim. Um, I am the uh, Vice President of Business Development here at Coinbase. Uh, and, my, and I also lead the listings team here um, at the company. And for those of you that don't know what the listings team does, uh, we're the team that works with projects all around the world help them get possibly listed on Coinbase's central exchange. Um, we exist because it's not easy to get listed on Coinbase. Uh, we probably have one of the most rigorous uh, standards for tokens. Um, we review every single one. Um, and we notice that it's not easy for teams to go through this process on their own, which is why the listings team exists, to help them understand what it takes and to be with them every step of the way. I think less than 10% who apply for a listing even get considered for a listing. Um, so the percentage is really, really low, but we're here to help teams and that's why the team exists and that's why uh, I'm here here at Coinbase. Now today, uh, we're actually gonna be talking about uh, tokens and listings and exchanges. Um, and we're gonna talk about specifically, um, um, you know, why day one listings um, are important. Now, let me just kind of go ahead and explain why day one, what a day one listing is. These are tokens that have not been listed before. These are tokens that represent new, exciting projects that are looking for a place to list. Um, and day ones are where a lot of innovation happens. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit about why they're important, um, why many projects have chosen to do uh, day one listings um, on Coinbase, on centralized exchanges, um, on exchanges based in the US, um, and why day ones are just important for the broader crypto economy. So that's what we're gonna talk about today. Um, but I have some really cool guests, really great guests to actually engage in that discussion with us today. First of all, I'd like to introduce Daniel Forrester, who is a partner at uh, the law firm Oric. And uh, at Oric, he uh, leads the FinTech practice there and um, has run a lot of interesting articles about crypto. So I'm super excited about having Daniel on. And uh, of course, we also have Luke Lombi, um, a founding partner at the faculty group. Um, faculty group is a how about get this right, Luke? A full stack Web3 advisory and venture capital firm. I think you know, and you guys do market making and incubation as well. Um, Luke actually uh, interviewed me um, a couple of months ago in Australia um, at a, I think it was a popular session there. Um, Luke, what, what, what was it called? <laughs> you know what it was called, Dan. Crypto sucks. <laughs> and then, and there we talked, uh, talked a lot about. Um, the kind of the changes that crypto needs to see in order for it to be mainstream and just be something that a lot of, um, you know, people who are not in it today, um, you know, gotta get them, to, you know, make us create a safe environment for them to do so. So we talked about that and we're gonna talk a little bit about that today. So with all that said, let's go ahead and start with basics here um, for those who might not know what we're talking about. Centralized exchanges and decentralized exchanges. Daniel, what's something that you could tell to somebody who just doesn't know what the differences are? Like, what, what are some bullet points and some sound bites they can walk away with? Yeah, if you don't know the difference, start at a centralized exchange, um, right? Like, a, a centralized exchange is, is kind of what it sounds like. If you have a token and want to exchange it for something else, 
you need to somehow identify a counterparty. And that's really hard to do as Daniel Forrester on the street. And so rather than that, I go to a centralized place where there are buyers and sellers and liquidity. And it's it's just a much easier user-friendly way to do it than decentralized exchanges. All right, Luke, what's the uh, the project team asset issuer definition of a DEX versus a central exchange? I mean, a DEX is on chain, isn't it? Um, I guess a DEX is, you know, it's that dream, it's that Web3 decentralized ethos that we're trying to chase. We're still a long way away from. Uh, so everything's on chain and, uh, and we have uh, a matching engine, which is, um, I guess, a little visible, more visible than on a centralized exchange, but it's missing all of the features and, and nuance and, and frankly, a lot of the um, a lot of the the things that we need and we and we look for like the the deep liquidity like that like the, the strong matching engine that the, the sex has like the regulatory compliance uh, and everything else that something like Coinbase would bring to the market. So yeah, Luke, you so you decided early on that you uh, wanted a list on a central exchange, and in fact, um, you were very intentional about about making sure that it gets listed on a U.S. based central exchange and specifically Coinbase. Talk to us a little bit about that, and we'd love to get Daniel's reaction to that too, because it's always interesting to kind of put together an attorney and a and a uh, an asset issuer who are not necessarily working with each other. So. <laughs> Yeah, sure, no problem. Like we've, um, as faculty group, we work with a number of different projects and have done so over the past few years, uh, helped many projects launch and come to market. And in doing so, we want to set them up for as much success as possible. And that we've done that through a variety of different ways in terms of their, their market entry and their token generation event launch process. Centralized exchanges are really critical to the launch and to the success of a launch. Um, overall, but in particular, being in America adds another dimension altogether. The process of going through um, through the listing and the approval process, um, it's rigorous. There's no doubt about it. There are, There's a lot of, um, of work to be done to ensure that the project and, and all of the factors within the project um, meet the, sta the standards that are set. And I think that's really important as well. Um, if you look at what's going on in the market today, there's a real lack of trust. And while crypto and trust uh, trying to be untethered from each other, they are intrinsically linked in a large way. Uh, and so when you are dealing with centralized entities, it's really important that you have that trust there. And I think that's what you guys really bring. Daniel, what are your thoughts on that? Because I mean, I, I think in a, um, in, in a in a world where things are much different than they were a month ago, um, trust is a word that I hear a lot about um, everywhere I go in crypto. Talk, talk to me a little about trust and, and the importance of trust in, for, for project teams. Yeah, sure. I think it really comes down to what you're trying to achieve through a listing at all. Part of it's liquidity, but part of it's also really sending a signal to all the interested parties in your project. And that's consideration of the range, right? You have early ecosystem participants, you have people who are looking at your token and interested in it, you have people who are looking at your technology and interested in it, you have your employees, you have consultants, you have developers, right? You're going to try to build out an ecosystem. And I have a client that was in the Terra ecosystem. And that went very badly. I have clients who are exposed to a number of the counterparties over the course of the year that have had real issues. And so I think that the crypto ecosystem is much more attuned to, frankly, risk, counterparty risk, project risk. And so there's a real virtue to getting listed with a centralized exchange, especially one with a reverse listing process, because it signals to all of those participants in the ecosystem, uh, this is a good project. Right. Yeah. You mentioned at the start that out of you know 100 projects that come to you, maybe only 10% even get considered. 
that's yeah. an important fact for people who are looking at projects and where they want to spend their time and invest their money. And, and, and it's really key that a project gets that sign early because it, it can snowball in a positive manner. And for projects that don't have that signal, I, I think there is more skepticism now. I think, I, the, yeah. yeah. I remember um, a couple of like maybe a year ago, there were projects that came to the table and, and they were just basically telling me that, hey, we want to get listed on Coinbase because it's like it's like a badge of honor. Like, hey, we have nothing yeah. to hide. Like, we're legit. Um, and, and Luke, like even if like, you know, even with projects that don't have customers in the U.S., you know, uh, right. overseas, they're still coming to us and really wanting that badge of honor. Like, has your has your mindset changed at all? Like over the past couple of weeks with, with kind of what's happened with FTX and, um, you know, just the importance of trust and protecting consumers and you know, is that like, has, has the physics changed? Has the calculus changed um, in terms of what, you know how project teams are choosing where to list and how to list? Absolutely. I mean, look, we were we were already kind of mindful of that as it stands. I'm not going to mention any names here because it's not appropriate. But we have experience with most of the major exchanges, i.e., the top twenty exchanges. We've listed on most of them. I've dealt with most of the listing teams. I've been through most of the processes. So I'm speaking with sort of some experience here. Um, there are shenanigans, uh, to say it lightly, going on. <laughs> There's no sort of no, no two ways about it. There are marketing campaigns that happen that I, you know, I doubt the veracity of those campaigns. I wonder what actually goes on behind the scenes because once you're in that sort of black box, you have no visibility. Um, and so essentially these tokens are just entries on a, on a, on a spreadsheet, on a database essentially. And what they do is is up to them. The other point that I'd like to add in terms of the risk, aside from counterparty risk and so on, is exchange risk. I mean, let's be real. There is there are some real problems, and they were exposed with FTX, and we we saw this whole Merkel tree proof of reserves uh, where everyone was trying to quickly show, yeah, we're we're solvent. We have you know here's our balance sheet. Obviously, it's it's certainly not foolproof what they were doing, but there were funds moving around between these exchanges, which was like, what's, yeah. what's going on here, guys? Come on, you know, it's all on chain. We see what's happening. And so that's, that just led everyone to start pulling their money off of centralized exchanges. Self-custody became a big thing. Stick it on a ledger. Don't trust all the exchanges. Um, and look, this is, I don't want this to be a, a shield session for Coinbase, but it, it is, it, it makes you feel more secure when you know that you're a public listed company in the US, you have so much more regulatory oversight and compliance that you're dealing with there, that you, you feel a bit more at ease when you're dealing with Coinbase than you do with some of these other exchanges. I think it's something that's really important. And in terms of that badge of honor, there is no doubt about it. I mean, when it, where, in it, where a project lists is really, um, it's like it, it it sort of starts you off at a certain level. If you list at X exchange, then you start off here. If you list at Y exchange, you start off there. And so it really says a lot about the quality of the project as to where their day one listing or where those early listings are. Uh, everyone's aspiring for you know the top exchanges. And there are other factors, obviously, aside from that compliance and regulatory oversight, there's, and I think Daniel mentioned this before, there's the liquidity, right? There's a ton of factors. I think the the trust factor is important. That badge of honor is, is critical. Daniel, kind of hearing like Luke talk about all this, and I'm sure you represent a lot of clients. Uh, obviously, when you talk to clients and project teams, probably the context is a lot different than doing a podcast with with uh, <laughs> with Coinbase and friends. But um, how does that make you feel? And like, are there are there a lot of Lukes out there that you're seeing? Um, or you know, how, just talk to us a little bit about your your experiences working with project teams. Because I want to really you know send this message out um, in, in a way that you know just gives them more information to make the right decisions going forward. Yeah, sure. 
I think there's really a range of products, right? So the other 90 that you reject are still interested in going somewhere. And I'm, I'm very lucky to work predominantly with projects that are reasonably well-funded, taking everything serious, are interested in compliance and interested in the US. Um, but there are plenty of projects that are looking at the US from a bigger picture and saying, look, I, I don't know enough about where they're going from a regulatory perspective and the regulators are active. And so if I can go and get li listed someplace else first, that might buy me a runway of a year, two years to move further with my business plan to decentralize more and, and get into a better position. So maybe I wasn't considered as part of the 10% now, but two years down the road, I'll have achieved and met the markers that, that your team needs. And so there's, there's a little bit of what's the maturity, what's the funding level, and then also, frankly, what's the, the, the patience level with the early ecosystem backers in terms of what's their horizon, what are they thinking yeah. about as well. And yeah. all of that plays into what, in my mind, is, look, I'd, I'd prefer to go Coinbase first or another U.S. centralized exchange first because I think that signal is very important because yeah. it really mm -hmm. sends the right message to the ecosystem. But it's, it's not an easy choice. And, and and that's where um, day one listings, right? Like, hey, I, I have a brand new token. Um, it's going to be really, really cool. I'm super excited. The community is excited about it. We've done a lot of things right. Um, we're going to do some really cool high impact stuff. Where do I list? Um, right. So before we talk about where, let's talk about day one listings. Uh, you know, these are tokens that are new. They represent new projects. Um, they're, you know, they're, they're, they're things that the world hasn't seen before. Why are they important? Um, and why are they important to the project team? Why are they important to users that are going to use that uh, product? And why is it important to the broader crypto economy? Yeah, I think part of it really is that it's the first opportunity for project to face a lot of scrutiny. It's going to face a lot of interest, face a lot of press. It's it's their coming out day in many respects, and that's big for, frankly, getting people exposed to what the project is doing and what that technology is going for. And one of the things that I really love about crypto is that there really is such a range of projects focused on privacy, focused on transaction speed, focused on TPS, right? Bunch of different chains, bunch of different projects on top of it. And the day one is really the moment where you come out, right? And people can start looking at you seriously. And so if you want to have excitement from an ecosystem, if you want to have, frankly, people that want to go and work on your project, you need it. And that's really when that day kicks off. Yeah. I mean, Luke, you're going through one. Um, and there's a lot of work that goes into it and a lot of planning and a lot of a lot of everything. Um, but you know, tell me about why day ones are important to you and your project. And also like, you know, if you kind of take a look at the broader ecosystem, what does it do to just drive it forward? Yeah, I'm I'm gonna take it to a really practical point here and um I'm sure everyone's familiar with the Gartner hype curve, right? It's like where all technologies go through this similar kind of peak. Are they like this euphoria of everyone's just aping into it, this peak of expectation, which I call the peak of stupidity, then it comes crashing back down <laughs> to the top of disillusionment, and then it starts to grind out into the plateau of productivity, I believe it's called. Every technology goes through it. Um, the same can be said with tokens <laughs> and the same can be said with their interest level, frankly. I mean, this is just, this is an important point to make and it's not the central point, but it's definitely key. 
Yeah, when a, when a token first lists um, is when the first opportunity that retail has to engage, right? You want to make sure that the, the most people that are most interested, um, that are truly going to be foundational to the project, have that opportunity to get involved um, in a meaningful way, in a way that is, to Daniel's point, safe, secure, reliable and compliant as well, obviously. Um, and I think it's really important that day one listing is set up in a way that allows people to do so. What you don't want is a huge pump and dump like that Gartner Hard Curve. That's not what it's about. You want to make sure that there is access, right? And that access is handled in the right way, essentially. Um, and that you have the right measures in place to ensure that, you know, you have that continued opportunity for people to engage with the project. I think that's one thing that's, that's kind of important. And, you know, and that comes down to, um, you know, that, that market access, that retail market access comes down to the exchange and how many users there are and um, how engaged those users are and the liquidity and the volume that's been driven through that exchange. So that's really, really critically important for the, for the project, obviously. Um, because, again, that's what sort of sets the tone to a large extent. It's um, once some of that sort of earlier interest over the first few months, uh, things can sort of settle down into a bit of a rhythm, which is great. That's what you want. Um, uh, you know, it's it's good to, to capture as much of that energy as possible. I think that's really, really critical. Um, and to some of the points that have already been made before, you want to make sure that there is that deep liquidity, right? You don't yeah. want to have huge volatility when there is not that liquidity there. And it takes some, some time for things to normalize. So I think that's really important also. And to Luke's credit, I think you Luke, you reached out to me I think like months ago, even like during the summer, um, well before even the, uh, you know, what was going on with uh, FTX and, and so forth. So clearly there's teams that are kind of thinking ahead of this. Um, but unlike Luke, um, you know, and the reason we're having this podcast and, and we're kind of talking about this, um, I, I, I got a call um, a couple of weeks ago, um, actually like a, like a month before the, uh, the FTX crash, um, from some uh, some project teams, I started telling me things that um, that was just seemed very bizarre to me because um, I haven't heard it before. They basically said, "Hey, um, I heard two things. One was, hey, we're not going to list um, in the U.S. Um, we've been told uh, by people that we believe and trust. Um, again, this is before uh, you know the FTX fallout <laughs> that um, um, it is much safer to uh, list, um, particularly for a day one um, in, in in offshore exchanges where there's very little regulatory oversight and it's much easier, faster, etc." Um, and then there's like the other kind of rumor that I heard, which is like, hey, we heard the same thing, but we just decided not to list because um, <laughs> we don't want to list overseas. Um, and now that some people are telling me they don't want to list in the US either, I'm not sure why, but we heard it from somebody, right? Um, so I, I was like, it, it was just one of those things where just, I, just got, I just got very like, what the heck is going on? Where are these rumors coming from? But talk to me a little about, about that because it was really heartbreaking for me to like, talk to these really cool projects and then later on find out and then and they're based in the us and they're like oh you know what no we're not going to launch here we're going to launch you know overseas um often in like competitive you know markets right i think everyone actually wants access to us markets there are a lot of interested us consumers but we are not the only market in the world like we're just not <laughs> um you can launch a project in another jurisdiction receive enough access get decent liquidity that's an option that's not good for frankly, anyone on this call, perhaps Luke in Australia, um, but not good for anyone in America, not good for innovation in America, not good for teams in America that want to develop projects for, frankly, users here. Um, and to the extent that we continue to see a trend or really do see an increasing trend of people listing XUS, I, I think it 
it dampens excitement and frankly dampens innovation in the space. I'll tell you why that might be from a project point of view. And that's just the fear of your regulatory authorities. <laughs> There's a fear that if someone does something wrong, then they're going to get called into, in, into, into question for it. Uh, we have uh, another project that we're, we're I, won't, I won't mention who they are, but they're based in the US. And, and it's because of the, let's just call it the overly litigious nature of the US, that, how it is, that they're, you know, that they're really trying to make sure everything's buttoned up, but they're really paying extra attention to when they're dealing with US investors, right? And make sure that they're, and that's why every, every soft, like every project that we have, we, we never raise from the US, simple, uh, because um, there is just, we just don't know what's gonna happen. Even if they're accredited investors or whatever, you need to essentially be a foreign entity to be involved in the, um, in the in the process because of this fear of what happens and, and what's going to happen and while it's a fear at the same time it is totally necessary that all these regulations come into play and I, just looking at the recent this last year for example has been a very tumultuous year in crypto we've had a number of events go on one was more code-based um the background with luna that was necessary not necessarily individual actors that were causing issues. That was a failure in code and, and math. But there are other events where, you know, that were quite preventable. And not to say that these are exclusive to crypto. We see them outside of the traditional finance space or in the in the general commercial space all the time. But we need this regulatory oversight. We need to ensure the right compliance um, is being adhered to. Um, and you know, I think it's really important that as we go through this process. Uh, there is uh, the right frameworks being applied um, and that if you're acting with the best as a project, if you're acting with the best intentions, that you're not deliberately trying to defraud, you don't go out with any kind of um, duplicitous uh, intent, then, you know, you're, you're looked upon a little more lightly because we're th this, this, the goalposts keep shifting. We're constantly sort of evolving through this process right now. But honestly, I think that's probably why. My, in my experience is because you know, we don't know quite what we're dealing with, so let's just not deal with it, right? If if we're gonna have the US involved here, well, then that's just gonna open us up to so much more scrutiny. Uh, yeah, let's deal with that later, you know, once we figure out exactly what we're looking at here. To the same extent, I would say, however, that if you're a project that has really solid fundamentals, has a really solid team, is doing everything to the best of your abilities by the book with the rules as they sit right now, today, then you shouldn't be fearful. No, and that makes, total sense here as well right what you're dealing with in the us and and you hit it exactly earlier when you said regulatory authorities plural that's <laughs> difficult right like it's difficult enough having one regulator um and here you're pointing to the alphabet soup of federal regulators some ags are getting into it dfs is obviously into it it's a lot to swim through um, and exactly to Luke's point and, and what we were talking about earlier, there's a little bit of a timing aspect to it where for day one, you, you may not be ready for all of those regulators immediately. And it requires time to build out, time to mature, time to decentralize before you're sort of ready to get into that. But Luke, you're also exactly right. The regulators are many, but not infinitely funded right and so they're looking at trying to use their resources in the best way they can and so if there's a project that is truly you know fraudulent pump and dump bad that's really out to harm consumers that 
moves to the top of the list as compared to, look, these guys are doing everything they can. They've hired the right lawyers. They're trying to be compliant. They, they're doing just, they've got the right story to it. That's, that's a lower priority and, and frankly, lower in terms of risk. There are a lot of things you can do that even if you ultimately have a discussion with a regulator, they're largely reasonable people. They'll, they'll try to tune it the right way. So, so what are these risks? Uh, I mean, Luke, you kind of said, you know, there's, there's just so much like, I don't know, and maybe it's just better like to not to just mess in that market. And, you know, I, so, but Daniel, more, more, back to you, like, what, what are these risks? Like what, what like what are perceived and what are real? Can you, is there anything that you can kind of like talk about just to help put those together? Yeah, no, it's, it, it's interesting, right? We, we don't have new laws. That that's very hard for us to do here. Um, we do have regulation by enforcement, though. And over the last year, there's been a very active trend towards regulation by enforcement that, frankly, is changing a little bit of how people are looking at, frankly, just is my token a security, right? If my token is security, we're, we're not getting listed. And, and sort of there's a, just a laundry list of bad things that follow from that. Right. And if you look at some of the recent enforcement actions, there are a whole range of new factors that were identified as contributing towards it being a security. One founder didn't ask me anything. Does that make your token a security? I, I, I mean, I don't know, but someone seems to think that it's a factor towards yes, right? Yeah. And and that, in in my mind, is a really good example of, wait, so you're telling me, like, I shouldn't do anything. And that's pretty inconsistent with actually developing a project, right? Like, if, if you're part of a team developing a project, even if you're part of an ecosystem developing a project, you, you need to be able to talk about it. You need to be able to do something. And, and there's just, there's a little bit of a cloud of uncertainty about which of these things is okay and which of these things is going to set my token up for a problem down the road. Right. Yeah. I think that's the key thing here is the security question, you know, this sort of, this oscillating between is it or is it not a security? Uh, frankly, look, not to get philosophical for a minute, I don't understand why you would want to prevent anyone from having access to an opportunity to grow wealth and make it so it's limited by the fact that how much money you already have, whether you're an accredited investor or not. It's not my my decision to sort of <laughs> make that. But, but I mean, look, it's 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 tricky because, you know, and that's the, the key the issue we're, we're facing here. And but now when we're seeing it sort of leak into NFTs as well, now we're having all of this sort of legal um, commentary on at what point, you know, NFTs are a taxable event and all these other things mm -hmm. that are happening around there. So it does make it, it, it just makes it um, a, a bit of a minefield in terms of dealing particularly with the US. And I understand why your regulators are doing it, because at the end of the day, they're trying to protect US investors. And this is an industry rife with fraud, rife with all sorts of scammy kind of behavior. Frankly, it's something that that I'm really upset about. I think we all are. Anyone who's honest in this space, we have to get through it. As a, as the industry matures, I know that we will. Um, and so the regulators are there to ensure that people don't get burnt and that there's a real need for that. But when they start coming down on projects that have the right intent, then it does make it, you know, it does make it a hard battle to, to fight. So Daniel, besides like kind of sidestepping all these potential um complications or at least all these like difficult discussions you got to have with difficult people um <laughs> what what are what are the advantages of going offshore besides just not having to deal with all that stuff they're concerned with and and by the way like coinbase does not list securities um luke knows this and 
you know, everyone that we talked to knows this and, and, and we're here to work together with uh, teams and with regulators to do the right thing for, uh, for, for just, just everybody. Um, but, you know, at least prior to FTX's fall, there, there were teams even based in the US that chose offshore exchanges. Um, I kind of get the, hey, I don't want to deal with like the complications that can arise from there, but what other advantages are there, if any, that are real? I think speed, right? It, it, it's not a question only of, I don't want to deal with a regulator. It's that the U.S. exchanges are really a little bit more rigorous. And that's because the U.S. exchanges are dealing with the regulators, uh, right? Yeah. Even if the token project isn't, you guys are constantly. And so you take your compliance very seriously. It's part of why you're such a trusted brand, right? But that trust and that confidence, and that compliance that you have, frankly, adds friction to the project in terms of wanting to get easy liquidity. Yeah. What, Luke, any, uh, I mean, one of the things I really enjoyed about um, meeting you and, you know, I actually flew to Australia to make sure he was real, by the way. And that was kind of one of those <laughs> things where I was like, this is, this sounds too good to be true. Saying too many good things. Luke, why, why, I mean, would you ever, or have you ever thought about going offshore exchanges first for <laughs> a project? Um, and, uh, you know, why, why did you kind of think that? And, you know, I'm just kind of curious, like what your brain went through. Oh, of course. I mean, I mean, up until now, we have gone with offshore and um, offshore exchanges first, um, and that's been. There's a couple of reasons for that. One is access. Okay, um, you know, you guys have a a very uh, strict approval process. Obviously, um, not just from a compliance and regulatory point of view, but there are a number of other factors that you look at with the project. And like you said, ensuring the team's real. That's one thing, you know, um, anonymous teams, there are anonymous teams in some projects and um, that, you know, uh, that offers a, a whole new risk category in and of itself. But, um, you know, you guys are very diligent in the way that you assess projects. And so that really narrows down the, the number of projects that are suitable, frankly, um, putting aside the compliance factors. So I think that's, that's one point. Um, and, these other these other exchanges, uh, they pretend to be diligent. Let's let's face it; they've got their own little questionnaires that they send through to you, and they make you fill out a bunch of forms and jump through hoops, and they charge you these exorbitant listing fees. Um, and then, frankly, and I'm, again, I'm not going to name who they are. There are these scammy kind of marketing activities that they engage in, which you just wonder if these tokens are even getting to any of their users because you just have no visibility or insight. They're like, yeah, give us a bunch of your tokens and we're going to distribute them to all of our <laughs> users if they stake their tokens and that's going to get them all involved and engaged. And then you do that. And then on the on day one, all these tokens just get dumped straight away. It's like, okay, great. That worked. Um, so <laughs> there's, you know, there's, there are pitfalls with dealing with some of these exchanges and, at the end of the day, you want to be where the, the users are. Okay, you want to you want to be where people are. Let's be real. Okay, for a minute, there are hundreds of exchanges. Um, there is reported volume. If I can quickly look it up now, I'm gonna I'm gonna say it's in the high high billions of uh, 24 hour volume. 46 billion dollars of reported volume on CoinGecko. Now, I would hazard a guess that probably 90% of that is fake uh, <laughs> because it's it's wash trading, it's market makers. And I know for a fact, because we are a market maker, uh, we know what goes on, right? And there are literally in the in the contracts that we have to sign with some of these exchanges, 
they dictate how much volume must be generated uh, or else you get delisted or else you get, you know, your security deposit, you know, taken away from you. So if you don't maintain those volumes, then watch out. And so how do you maintain those volumes? Wash trading. If the organic demand isn't there, you've got only one option. We don't do it. We know a lot of people that do. And it's it's something that is, you know, it's rife within the industry. So there's a lot that is appears nice on the surface that's simply not. And that's where the trust really comes back into it. And that's why working with you, Dan, working with Coinbase, um, you know that there is just so much that you don't have to worry about because it's real, right? And and in this day and age, in this space, being real, that's that, that means a lot. <laughs> Remember you um, asking me very early on, or maybe someone from your team, how much do you guys charge? I was like, for what? Right. Uh, to get list to get listed. I'm like, what do you mean? I was like, well, like, what's your fee? It's like, what do you mean? Uh, like, well, there is no fee. It would make sense, frankly, and I'm, I'm not telling you guys start charging people, but it would make sense that we you want have yeah. a fee yeah. to cover some of the costs of administration, going through due diligence, all of that. That's perfectly acceptable. Um, but the like, I, I, again, I'm not going to name names. I'm not here to point fingers. But one of the major exchanges, top five, um, wants between two to five percent of the supply, the the total supply wow. of the token. Now that is just a straight up predatory. It's like, yeah, we'll list you before they even really look at what you are. Yeah, we'll list you, but we want at least two to five percent of your supply. You give us that, and it's like we're good. And like, I wonder what's going to wow. happen. Well, those tokens, you know, it's like it's just crazy, right? And so, and you and you wonder why these tokens get sort of driven into the ground over time because these these exchanges don't care. They're just they're dumping, 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 and then exploiting their own their own projects that uh, that are listed on them. So, it's a problem, you know. And it's funny because some other some other exchanges that we've dealt with, as little as I would say eighteen months ago would have listed one of our projects without telling us for free, which is great, thanks so much, but they wouldn't even tell us. We'd find out from the community, oh, XYZ um, Exchange is listing your, your tokens. Like, what? Okay. Is it like 12 hours? Congratulations. We have to, we have to <laughs> together to kind of figure things out and, and get things set up and, and then bang, it's there. Now those same guys are charging hundreds of thousands of dollars claiming wow. that because they've got so much volume, which again, wow. I, I'm guessing is fake, that that's because they can, they can, uh, they can do that. So I don't know. There's look, it's, it's a frustrating, there's no doubt about it. This is a frustrating industry to deal with um, on some levels. It's a super exciting industry as well. There's so much innovation. There's so much good stuff coming out of it. I think once we get through this this phase that we're in right now we're going to pop out the other side a lot better well look um i want to talk about one more thing here um and then daniel I'm, I'm kind of curious like when you hear it like <laughs> kind of what happens behind i don't know it's closed doors or like you know behind the closed zoom walls or, or whatever mm -hmm. but like how does that like does that jive with kind of what you're seeing and and, and the next two things i want to talk about is like you know kind of the effect that ftx collapse has had on kind of attitudes about listing and then what needs to change but let's start a little bit with like like when you hear this stuff that's happening that luke's encountered with um you know different exchanges all around the world like is that pretty much like line up with your expectations and your experiences or is it new is it old news is it yeah i'm, I'm going to distinguish between expectations and experiences um, okay. Because it tracks, it tracks on experience. <laughs> yes. um, I'm a little bit of an optimist. 
Um, and so I'm a little bit disappointed, but I, I, I tend to take the view of follow the money. Right. Mm. And, and what I want to understand with most kind parties is where are you making your money? Because you're going to follow the money yourself, your own BD team, your own executive team, they're going to chase profits because that's the game they're in. And if, if that profit is coming because of activity that's aligned with me, right, I want good legitimate trading on my token. And so if you're taking a transaction fee on trades, I get that. If what you're doing is demanding 2% of supply, if what you're doing is being an active investor in the space, I, I think you have a lot of opportunities for, frankly, misalignment between projects and exchanges. And, yeah. and that's, that, that's something that I think, frankly, there's a lot of uh, lack of visibility in for new projects and especially projects that don't have experienced counselors like, like Luke and others um, to help them guide them through that. Let's talk about uh, uh, the FTX collapse um, and um, just kind of what you guys have seen in your circles uh, with respect to how people are thinking about listing and where and kind of the impact that's had. Um, I'll say, you know, it's 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 been one of those situations where um, we've had a lot more uh, teams come to Coinbase as a result of that. Um, and the trust being kind of the word I hear the most, um, yeah. especially in a centralized exchange. Um, but talk to me a little bit about that, um, Daniel, kind of what you're seeing. Luke, I'd love to hear your point of view and then I'd love to wrap up with like, you know, what needs to change given all this, right? I mean, crypto just happens at, you know, at crypto speed, which is, which is fast. Um, but and change is usually <laughs> lagging. Um, but there's often event, events like this that kind of spark and catalyze um, things to help them move faster. So yeah, Daniel, like FTX collapse. What? How has that changed people's mindsets about listings in general? Yeah, we we talked a little bit earlier about sort of ecosystem risk, counterparty risk. Luke rightly termed it also exchange risk. Um, exchange risk. You know, we had Matt Cox, but since then. Uh, FTX was one of the largest, one of the most active players in recent years, and people, frankly, thought it was legitimate. I, I think there, there are some people who said, oh, no, I, I saw the smoke, and, and that might be the case. A lot of people thought it was legitimate. I, I think there's a very rude awakening to the fact that even though something is a very large exchange in this space, that doesn't really actually necessarily mean that much. Not all exchanges are regulated equally. Not all exchanges are as mature as each other. And, and I think before people just sort of looked at, I want to get listed, I want lower fees, I want access to liquidity, I want access to capital quickly. And they weren't considering as much who they're actually listing with. And I think now they need to. And so we're having a lot more conversations around, do you want to go with that counterparty? Here are some things about them. And that's, that's sometimes eye-opening for projects. Yeah. Luke, what are you hearing yeah. in your circles? Yeah. Yeah. What I'm hearing right now is like not a lot of conversation around listing at the moment because <laughs> this is just not the market to be listing into, right? It's it's a pretty terrible time out there. Uh, I hope we turn the corner sooner than later, but I think FTX has probably yeah. delayed things for us, if anything. Um, from an inside industry point of view, um, there were certainly people in my team that had some idea that there was predatory practices going on with Alameda and FTX. Um, I, I don't think they expected, and I know they didn't expect what happened to happen, but we certainly knew that uh, they would opportunistically put perpetual futures on certain tokens and there'd be all sorts of crazy stuff going on behind the scenes there with the shorting and, and so on, um, where this whole altruistic doing good for everyone persona that's been um, you know pushed through the media isn't really what was happening behind the scenes. Uh, I won't speculate too much more on that. Needless to say that 
there's an interesting story that's being concocted by mainstream media at the moment, which I think is baffling everyone. Um, that said, look, this is not really a market um, for listings to take place. Um, I think people are probably just wanting to sit things out, get to the other side of Christmas and New Year and, and see how 2023 plays out for us. Uh, and hopefully it's a little better than this last year, which has certainly been tough. Um, yeah. But yeah, look, FTX was a big one. There is no doubt about it. I mean, it was they naming stadiums, weren't they? And, and in the US, so you would have thought that they had the kind of oversight <laughs> hey. that, Right. I, I, I was at a I was at an event I remember and like we had rented a little, little venue that I thought was kind of cool and I was like oh this is kind of a little bit extravagant because like you know we had like like nicer food than we typically do or whatever and then it's like hey look behind you I'm like I look behind I'm like oh my god is that it was it was like a like a coliseum with <laughs> and it like that's my that's my backdrop at a Coinbase event I was like oh man this is embarrassing but, <laughs> no, no, but no but look no I think you're right it has changed um just just how things work and. You know, kind of going back to like the whole topic of this podcast, like you know, it's all it's all about, you know, how do we get more day one listings and how do we get them to stay in the United States? Where I, I just think it has to in order for innovation to really happen and happen in the right way in the safest way possible. Um, now, I think you're right, Luke. Like now it's time to build. And I also think this kind of had a little bit of a purge, <laughs> if I can use that reference, um, to just kind of like getting a lot of the bad stuff out of the system. But the change still needs to happen. Mm. We still gotta be create an environment that's safe for entrepreneurs to do things here in the U.S. What are those changes that need to happen? Because my concern sure. is if we don't do some of those things now, we're gonna be so behind in, in innovation. We're gonna see a lot of that go outside of the U.S. We're gonna see a lot of that in Europe, in yeah. Asia, in Latin. In fact, it's already happening. I, as much as I love the U.S., I've lived there. I've spent a lot of time there. I was there just a few months ago. I'd like to see more investment, more building going on in Australia. But that's just me being a parochial Aussie. Um, but look, to the same, the argument applies the same way. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, what I think is important is number one, having that right regulatory environment, that supportive infrastructure there that ensures that innovation is rewarded and it's not punished. Okay, that's that's the main ethos that needs to be adhered to here. If I can make another point, um, which is sort of somewhat tangential to what this one is, it's how do we improve security, safety um, of the overall industry and what we're doing here in central exchanges as well. I think we need to remind ourselves why we're here and what, uh, and I hate to use the word crypto, but Web3 blockchain is all about. It's about the blockchain, right? And that chain is that disintermediary of trust. And so while it's really important that we have these centralized figures and bodies such as you know Coinbase and these central exchanges and other central entities within the ecosystem, the, the, the more that we can decentralize that but still maintaining some of the um the benefits and the features of centralized entities but having as much stuff on chain as possible i think that's got a long way to achieving the overall vision that we're all set out here to to sort of follow and that we believe in and i think that there's a really interesting balance that can be struck here and particularly from your side on coinbase dan where you can have this combination deck sex kind of mentality uh by by having more on-chain visibility in some aspects of the business and maintaining some of that, um, you know, that centralized uh, user experience and, um, and, and support, which you can't get fully on-chain at the moment. And I think there's been some conversations around that about um, the custody of people's yeah. funds, for example, and, and where they're held and what's on-chain and what's behind, you know, the sort of cloaked, you know, um, cloaked doors. So I think finding that balance between the decentralized and the centralized exchange models, bringing these together into some kind of well-balanced fusion, 
I think it's an exciting opportunity moving forward yep. where there is more visibility for people and that's thought on chain because that's what, what it's all about here. It's all about yeah, being transparency. Yeah. That's, yeah, transparency. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Daniel, you're, you're, you're going to close us out. Um, you know, what needs to happen? What, what, what do we, what do we um, you know, me and Luke <laughs> and you and uh, the circles that we run in, you know, we value trust, we value transparency. We're really in this for the long run. Um, what, do we need, what needs to happen to just make, again, the U.S., a, uh, a a foundation for crypto innovation for web3 innovation um, which it isn't today because i'm seeing the opposite happen sure i i think fundamentally it comes down to getting the most participants as possible and when i was learning securities regulation in law school they explained it we want to make it so that your grandma can invest um yeah. I, I i'm not sure i want my grandma investing in crypto right now in most places <laughs> But yeah. I think the way we get there is by moving from regulators to regulator singular, right? It, I think there are a lot of projects that have funding that are trying to do the right thing, that are trying to move the ball forward, and they just don't know exactly how to do that yet. I think regulatory clarity will move a long way towards enabling that and getting those projects back on shore. I, I really hope um, the risk of losing the, the power of innovation in probably what is the most innovative thing to happen to yeah. technology in a very long time. I hope that does inspire that dropping that S right from regulators <laughs> to regulator. Um, and then instead of like scaring people, like it was really like when Luke said, Hey, we're scared. Like we don't know what's going to happen. Like anything can happen. Right. We're just going to stay. I mean, that really is heartbreaking for someone who's invested his entire life here and, and saw a lot of innovation happen um, up until now. So I do hope for a lot of change. Thank you both for your time. I really, really enjoyed this conversation. Um, and uh, I think that to do this again, maybe we'll invite one or both of you to a future session, but really, really appreciate uh, what you guys have said. And I really do hope that um, we do spark that change um, that we need here in the U.S. because I hate seeing all these projects that are actually started here execute outside of the U.S. That just doesn't make yep. any sense to me. So thank you so much. I know we can get it done. Um, appreciate it. And we'll talk to you guys soon. This has been the Around the Block podcast. We'll be back in two weeks. In the meantime, you can subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much for listening. Today's conversation is for informational purposes only and does not constitute legal or investment advice. Actual results may vary materially from any forward-looking statements made and are subject to risks and uncertainties.